Hello and welcome back to Take Orally and uh, this episode we're looking at a lower limb neurological examination as part of our early clinical experience series. Welcome back to Lucy Harris. Hello Lucy. Uh, hi, hello. Hello, appearing over Zoom as we are socially distanced and being responsible. Um, are you well? Uh, yeah, yeah, really good, thank you. Good. Um, yeah, not too bad today. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Right, so we've got some uh, neuro exam, can be a bit tricky. We've got a couple of mnemonics about Filipino children and Taylor Swift, so that should be interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. So you can tell Whatever I'm slightly hysterical. You can tell I'm slightly hysterical post nights and with impending lockdown. So uh, let us crack on then. Um, lower limb examination, uh, what are we looking for here? So in terms of what we're examining, we're going to be looking at um, uh, the brain, cerebellum, spinal cord, spinal nerves, and then also the peripheral nerves. And really the whole purpose of doing um, a, an upper or indeed a lower um, neurological examination is to be able to differentiate between the signs that we would see with an upper motor neurone um, disorder compared to a lower motor neurone disorder and it's and it's really sort of pulling those out throughout the examination those particular signs that you might be seeing seeing during your um, examination um, in terms of working through the examination just making sure that you're not missing any of the important components of it um we um we have a system because we like a system don't mm -hmm. we um we and system. Um, that system is using the mnemonic um in the philippines children still run free um so uh, i-t-p-c-s-r-f <laughs> so input i for inspection t for tone p for power C for coordination, S for sensation, R for reflexes, and F for function. Now, in terms of the function, in terms of the, um, I think when you're learning a new skill, when you're learning a new examination, it's quite important to stick to the system to make sure that you have it clear in your mind. And then yeah. when you, where you choose to do those particular aspects, it doesn't really matter as long as you're not missing any of them. Um, uh, and what I teach the students is actually that you may find, uh, depending on where you work in your clinical setting, um, that actually doing your function test first makes sense because you may have watched the patient walk into the cubicle, the room. Um, so while they're stood or if they're going to have to stand to get onto a couch, they're actually, let's have a look at them walking, do your function aspect then. But we'll, for the purpose of going through it in a systematic way today, we'll talk about function at the end. Cool. Okay. Perfect. One. So, so with inspection. So inspection. So in terms of starting your examination, we have to do obviously all of our niceties where we explain who we are and what we're doing there and what we're expecting of the patient and, um, and what they should expect of the examination today. Just a common courtesy. It's quite nice. It builds a rapport. Yep. Um, so explain to them what you're going to be examining. Um, and I guess there's a really, there's an emphasis here just to make sure that you're, um, you, you're not scaring the patient and you're putting it into sort of layman terms because I think sometimes we forget that actually we use lots of um, terminology that patients find completely irrelevant and actually um, it's I need to have a, a look at how you're walking today I need to examine your legs I need to look at the power and how you're moving your legs um, and then we'll test some of the sensation of your legs as well and, and just putting it into sort of terms that, that puts the patient at ease um, so on general inspection 
this really should be done with the patient lying down because you can they're at rest and the legs are at rest as you're looking at them um, and on inspection we've got another mnemonic for things that we might see um, it's not exhaustive because there, there will be other things that you need to have a look for as well but we use the mnemonic swift Taylor, if you like <laughs> but <laughs> swift um, on the specific aspects um, uh, with regards to a, a neurological examination so looking for any scars so any recent surgeries um, any injuries um, and that would include things like bruising as well in my mind um, and then looking for things like wasting so muscle wasting um, so noticing a, a clear difference in terms of the um, the, the size and um, uh, uh, the side of the muscles on, on each of the, the legs really if um, if you do notice uh, some muscle wasting then it's really important to then look out for all the other things that come alongside it including things like involuntary type movements any fasciculations so really fine little muscle muscle, uh, muscle twitches um, that you have to look so closely for um, and also any tremors tremors is a topic uh, in itself and worth reading around because there are many 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 different types of tremors and many different causes of tremors um, so um, I would recommend reading around tremors outside the um, outside of this podcast really um, so in terms of possible causes so, um, so in particular you may want to have a look at the patient's back as well to assess whether they've had any spinal surgery if they've got any scarring to the back as well um, good um, with um, wasting, what you may notice is that there's an atrophy um, with a lower motor neurone, um, uh, as a, a lower motor neurone sign, but that wouldn't necessarily be present um, in an upper motor neurone sign as well. Um, fasciculations, again, tends to be sort of a lower motor neurone sign. Um, so whether that be um, a lesion along the spinal cord as a result of surgeries or um, trauma um, or other medical presentations such as MS or ALS as well. Um, and you might notice some myoclonus as well in terms of involuntary type movements too. Good. So how uh, are we going to move on from there? So the first thing we're going to be um, assessing after inspection is going to be looking at tone and the patient's tone um, of their legs. Um, and and it's, it's a fairly easy, uh, easy test in the sense that uh, you start off by rolling the patient's legs. <laughs> so just rolling them, asking them to relax as much as possible, um, talking to them as you're doing it to try and distract them so they're not tense in the legs as, you, as you're trying to examine them. So just rolling each of the legs side to side and you'll be able to sort of um, see if there's any increased tone there or any rigidity or spasticity to the leg at all um, and comparing side to side. Um, and um, I think on the Geeky Medics um, uh, plug, Geeky Medics. Um, <laughs> we do love Geeky, Geeky Medics, Medics, I have to say. <laughs> they tend to, they flick the knee, so they kind of flick the knee up mm. to check for toe, mm. um, which in isolation, I don't know if it's that helpful. You will see if there's any increased tone there, absolutely. But in terms of looking for specific signs like cogwheeling, um, which you may see in, in early Parkinson's, um, you wouldn't necessarily pick up from that particular flick of the knee. So there is a, an aspect where you do actually have to pick the leg up and move the hip and rotate the hip, mm. bend, um, so flex and extend the knee, to, and flex and extend, um, dorsiflex and then extend the foot, uh, the ankle, so, so that you can actually feel any of these abnormalities. 
uh, rather than just a simple flick of the knee. I think it needs to be slightly more robust than that, really. Um, so thinking about the abnormalities you might find, we spoke about cogwheeling, so that could be seen in Parkinson's. Um, but um, thinking about things like um, spasticity, um, so in the... Um, might be indicative of sort of like stroke type presentations, um, certainly later um, in terms of their um, progression. And then thinking about um, the rigidity side of things, so cogwheeling, you might not necessarily find cogwheeling, but you might find rigidity, which also could be indicative of um, Parkinson disease. Um, good. And the thing I would point, I would say as a, as a tip with the tone, um, you know, you, you want to emphasize to your patient, just be floppy you know be be floppy <laughs> don't laugh at me yeah uh as in let your limbs be floppy uh you know relax etc um which sometimes patients do need to be um reassured and told about because you know they're in a hospital setting they might be a bit tense you want you know yeah. you want there to be no resistance because you don't want you know if they're tense and they're fighting you you may inadvertently think that they've got increased tone false positive don't. sign yeah absolutely um, bit, of they, uh, bit of innuendo there you for you <laughs> You find yourself prompting them quite a lot, saying, just relax. No, let me take the weight of your leg. Well, no, let me, let, yeah. let me relax, relax your leg. Let me take the weight of your leg. I like that. It's a, I think that's a really good thing, that let me take the weight. I think something like that, because, you know, you, you're, um, you, you run the risk of so much medical language. And if you go, let me take the weight. Okay, now push against me. Now pull me towards you. And, and making it as simple as possible with this examination, yeah. it helps you. <laughs> Anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> um, oh, the other thing, just to, to note, that if you're um, specifically looking at things like cogwheeling, it's really important to vary the speed and movement throughout, um, just to sort of see if you can elicit that sign as well. Yeah. Um, good. So then, moving on to, so we've uh, we've um, examined tone, uh, and then on to P, which is uh, power. Yeah, so moving on to power of the lower limb. Um, so again, it's really important to ask the patient to make sure that they're fully relaxed um, uh, as you're going to be start, um, going to fully relax. Do I want them relaxed? No, I don't really want them that relaxed, do I? I want them to have power, don't I? Yeah, I don't want to be relaxed. Well, you don't want to be stressed, but yeah. Not so floppy <laughs> so, at this point. <laughs> don't make your legs floppy now. I need you to use your power. <laughs> um, so... Um, Really, the most important part of this is that we're stabilising each and isolating each joint um, so that they're not cheating and using a bit of hip flexion to then lift their knee and things like that. Or indeed using their back um, or spinal muscles to be able to flex their hip and things. So it's really about isolating each of the um, joints. Um, so that you're only comparing that one particular myotome at a time. So we're going to start with hip flexion, which is um, myotome assessing uh, the L1, L2, um, and asking the patient just to lift their leg off the bed and making sure that you're, when you are pressing down, so um, you often see people um, saying, don't let me push your leg down, and they're actually pressing on the lower leg rather than over the thigh uh, region, which is obviously then going to be testing a little bit of your knee extension too. Um, so it's just making sure that you're, you are truly isolating it across so um, lift your leg off the bed hold it there don't we push it down um, uh, comparing side to side so right to left 
then asking them to um, to place new hands on the patient's thigh, asking them to stop you from lifting the leg up off the bed, and that's testing myotomes um, L5S1. Um, moving down to the knee, so asking the patient to bend both knees up, so flexing their knees with the foot flat on the bed, and then um, say to them, bend your knees so that the foot is flat on the bed, and don't let me push, uh, pull, pull your leg towards me, so don't let me straighten your leg. Some of this is really about terminology with the patient, so trying to understand what they mean by what you're asking them to do, because <laughs> um, otherwise you can get yourself in the right pickle. So, uh, bend your knee for me, don't let me straighten your leg, don't let me push it towards you. And yeah. so, um, testing S1 um, for knee flexion, um, and L3, L4 for um, the extension. Um, you'll be able to then move down to the ankle um, and assess in ankle, 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 ankle dorsiflexion, dorsiflexion uh, assessing myotome L4, L5. Um, so bring your, uh, your, your toes up towards you. Don't let me pull your feet down. Um, testing side to side again. Um, putting your hands below the feet saying can you push me away push my hands away um, and uh, plant flexion of the foot there so that's testing S1, S2 um, and what we're in terms of power what we're assessing is the level of power and we use the scale of 0 to 5 don't we yeah. um, when, it, when it comes to power um, which essentially is looking at 5 as normal for um, active full range of movement against resistance so there's a slight weakness there compared to to, to how you're performing um, I think you should be mindful that actually obviously we have uh, an older population of patients that do have an element of atrophy so actually a four out of five globally for somebody who's in their 90s wouldn't necessarily be an abnormal finding or something that would be unexpected certainly um, unless it was unilateral in one limb and then you'd start to really question it but as a global score um, then it's probably going to be related to age-related um, sort of atrophy really um, moving to three so three out of five active full range of movement against gravity so the patient can move their their arm up against gravity but when it comes to pushing you away they just can't absolutely do it or the leg can't should be saying because we're doing low limb anyway um and then two out of five active full range of movement with gravity eliminated you're actually having to lift their arm and they're able to do it but once you've taken gravity out of the equation for them you've got uh, one out of five which is just a visible tiny bit of contraction but actually not able to lift their arm at all and obviously zero which is total paralysis of the limb Good. Uh, make sure that you're assessing all of them against resistance, because otherwise that would defeat the object of um, assessing the power. It would indeed. Good. Uh, and then on to coordination. Um, on to coordination. Um, slightly easier than when we're, we're testing sort of upper limb because there's only one real test that we do for this which is um, heel to shin testing uh, where we ask the patient to place their heel of, for instance their left leg and put it onto their right shin and run it down the whole length of the shin they should be able to keep that central without deviating either side and then lift the, uh, the foot off come up to the top uh, and place their knee down again and run the knee down in a nice straight line again it should be well coordinated you should see no signs of ataxia um, they shouldn't be drifting off to one side or the other um, it's a bit like doing an Irish jig but laying down doing it I suppose just 
when Great I start much. playing a little bit of a fiddle Great. in the background. <laughs> Go floppy and so then have a fiddle. Our, Is that what you're saying? That's our coordination. Um, and really performing um, movements smoothly really does depend on the, um, on having an intact sensory and motor function and cerebellum. So this is really what we're testing as this part at this part of the neurological examination. Yeah. Um, good. Most patients will have no issues doing this, providing there's no other neurology to find. Essentially, yeah, it'll be very telling. Um, it's, it's a thing to uh, talk them through again because it's a little bit weird. Um, and um, yeah, so the the H in Danish for your cerebellar signs um, is your your heel positivity, so that inability to do the the heel shin coordination. Danish. Yeah, Danish. Have you not heard that? No. So uh, dystidokinesia, ataxia, nystagmus, intention tremor, uh, speech, and uh, H for heel shin. Cerebellar signs. Cerebellar signs. Danish. There you go, Danish. Did not. There you go. Oh, I'm loving it. <laughs> uh, and then S for sensation. Moving on to sensation. So again, we are going to be assessing all of the dermatomes this time. So um, the dermatonal pattern in terms of um, sensation, um, and looking to see if there's any. Um, uh, any deficit in any of the particular dermatonal areas. Um, now we're going to use different modalities to test this. So we do light touch, we do differentiation between um, uh, sharp and blunt. Um, we'll um, do some testing in terms of um, a patient's perception of vibration um, and also um, proprioception. Um, so there's there's four modalities that we need to test within within sensation. Um, and it's important to um, just explain to the patient each time how, how you're going to be testing that. So I'm going to use this cotton bud. I'd like to just test it on the centre of your chest. Um, this is what it should feel like. Close your eyes for me. So we're taking away the visual sensory aspect of the examination. So they, there's no cheating, essentially. Um, so no cheating um, and testing each of the um, dermatomes. It's really important in which case to know your dermatomes. Um, and what you often see is that patient, um, clinicians um, can sometimes be testing too low for one particular dermatome assuming it's the one higher up so particular with L1 S2 so L1 is actually really very high it's the pockets um, of your trousers where you should be testing and quite often you see people testing much lower than that so um, uh, testing L1 um, uh, which is really high up into the groin area, L2, middle of the thigh and lateral aspect of the anterior thigh, L3, which is the medial aspect of the knee, um, L4, medial aspect of the lower leg and ankle, L5 is dorsum and medial aspect of um, the big toe, um, and uh, S1, which is the lateral aspect of the little toe. Um, and that covers all of them. Excellent. Uh, once you have it clear in your mind where your dermatomes are, um, once you've established the light touch, you would go on to then um, test for pinprick sensation, which involves um, the use of your spinothalamic tracts um, and your awareness of sharp touch, essentially. Um, I do a 
differentiation between sharp and blunt, um, but I have seen um, the uh, spinal team uh, do a particular test where they <clears throat> where they test for sensation of like a stocking type distribution. So they'll use a pin grip coming down both legs to establish at what sensory level there might be a spinal lesion that's causing that um, sensory loss. Cool. So uh, that's our pinprick and um, and blood sensation. Um, and moving on to um, vibration sensation. Um, so using very specifically 128 hertz tuning fork, which we all know you have available in my particular workplace of ED. <laughs> I say with some cynicism. Um, however, yeah. Um, we will be asking the patient again to close their eyes and let you know when you detect the vibration and also when it stops. And it's a good. Um, it's a good practice to do this again onto the patient's chest so they have an idea of what they should be feeling um, and what to expect before then going on to do it for the lower limb um, and essentially where you're going to be placing that is on the interphalangeal um, joint of the patient's greater toe um, so the most distal joint um, asking them if they can feel the vibration and can you tell me when it stops most, most um, uh, patients where they have the, uh, this particular aspect of the lower limb intact will tell you that they can feel it in that spine. If they d- tell you that they can't feel the vibration, you're going to have to move further up the limb. So moving to the greater toe, hullets, uh, moving to the ankle joint, moving to the knee is necessary um, until they can um, uh, they can feel the vibration um, and when it, when it stops as well. And uh, um, and lastly, the last modality, so looking at proprioception. Yeah. Um, and this is another one that you can sometimes see um, uh, done quite badly um, in practice in the sense that it's a really, really fine movement. It's not big movements. Um, and how people are holding the, the digit, so the toe, um, the greater toe, should be held on the lateral aspects of the interphalangeal joint and should be holding the, um, at the edges of the toe rather than placing pressure over the nail bed and the pad underneath, which will be really highly sensitive. So you'd be testing a different tract really at that stage um, and they'd be picking up on pressure receptors rather than, than the, the true sort of proprioception side of it. Um, so it's really important to, t- to tiny small movements. I always say to the patient, this is what I'm going to be doing and have them watch what I'm doing first. So uh, tell me if your toes up or down or in the middle and then ask them to close their eyes um, and again move, move their toe um, to either up, down and the patient has to tell me where their toe is pointing. And it's intact and the patient should really have an idea of where their toes are going. Um, and if their proprioception is lost, um, you might find that there's a deficit on one particular side. So that is sensation completed. Um, so then we would move on to... Um, reflexes. To our reflexes. Now there is a technique <laughs> and... To be, there's a technique to be refined when it comes to um, reflexes. Some people have a natural gift and just <laughs> can do it. Um, some people have to just practice a little bit more. Um, uh, Ten hammers are built specifically for um, testing people's reflexes. They're the perfect weight. They have um, the perfect length to them to be able to allow um, gravity to really take the weight of the hammer so it's not you necessarily um, uh, having to uh, to swing um, or use force in terms of eliciting um, the reflex and in the lower limb we're going to be looking at the knee reflex and the ankle reflex specifically um, and um, 
it's really really imperative that you get the patient to relax as much as possible which is sometimes really hard um, to do when they're obviously feeling a bit anxious about being there to be examined anyway um, but getting to the relax the um, the thigh sometimes um, uh, it's good to just rest your hand underneath the patient's uh, leg that you're testing um, and just rest it over the the other the other thigh um, just to sort of take the weight of the limb so they're relaxing their leg down as much as possible. Alternatively, you can get the patient to sit on the edge of the bed or couch that you've got them on um, and, and test it with their legs sort of like hanging down so they're nice and relaxed at that, at that point. And what you're looking for is a... Um, a normal reflex you might see that they've got incredibly brisk reflexes um, or that they've got a hyporeflexia um, lots of people when I was learning to do this had um, varying responses in terms of their reflexes and got very worried that they had some unusual pathology um, so there was lots of reassurance that had to be done, <laughs> had to be done when we were practicing um, so in terms of um, hyperreflexia, that would maybe be an indication of an upper motor neurone disorder, as opposed to a hyperreflexia, which could indicate a lower motor neurone um, lesion or disorder that could be causing that. Excellent. Um... So finally, on um, our... Uh, reflexes. There is one more that we need to test, which is our Babinski's test. Everybody's favourite. Sorry? Everybody's favourite, this one. Yes. Um, <laughs> never do it with the end of a, um, of a tendon hammer because it's mean, because um, they're pointy and sharp. Um, don't do it with your pen either because it's just gross. Um, so if possible, um, use a... Um, some form of like maybe a tongue depressor would be ideal really single patient use throw it away afterwards um, and you have to be placing a firm um, pressure using the tongue depressure on the lateral aspect of the foot bringing it up fairly swiftly and across the lower aspect of the metatarsal heads and what you should see as a, um, a normal sign is that patients will curl their toes down and flex their foot slightly um, an abnormal reflex would be that they um, have um, extension of the greater toe or splay their toes um, which is a positive Babinski's and maybe a positive sign of an upper motor neurone um, disorder or lesion so moving on from our reflexes so that's our three reflexes we're going to test as part of our lower lip neurone so moving on <clears throat> we would go on to then test the, uh, the patient's function. So um, children are still running free function. So function um, really requires the patient to be able to walk normally as a starting point. Um, so you ask the patient to stand up and walk across the room and walk back to you. Um, and they should have a normal heel-toe stance gait. Um, you can assess for any kind of shuffling gait, which might be an indication of something like Parkinson's. See how they're moving their arms, because naturally you do move your arms as you walk, um, rather than holding them rigid at the side, which again could be a Parkinsonian type gait. You can see if the patient's waddling, which might indicate that they have a, um, a, a loss of their abductors, the hips, they might have a Trandelenburg gait. Um, also, um, and whether there's any signs of ataxia so whether they're really struggling with one particular side um, it may be that they're dragging one foot or they're catching their toe that there's some foot drop on one particular side so it's really sort of assessing all of those things at the same time 
when the patient's done that, we um, we move on to do heel-to-toe testing, which is often seen in uh, 80s cop movies, if they were trying to establish if somebody was drunk. Um, so heel-to-toe testing. Patients always laugh about this one whenever I do it with them, actually. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I've not had a drink. Um, um, and heel-to-toe testing, it really... Um, for those that have managed to walk absolutely fine, yeah. um, it may be that you are able to elicit a really slight ataxia that they weren't really aware of. Um, so it's really important to ensure that they can do this particular test and they do it well. So they can't cheat, they can't hold on to anything, um, and they can hold their hands out to the side because I think we all need to really do that. But essentially, they can't hold on to things and they should be able to um, be able to do it. Yeah. Um, if you notice that they're swaying to one side or that they just physically can't do it at all, some patients really can't, they, they get to the first step and they're like, I can't, I can't do that, I'll fall over. Um, so they, they sort of stop the um, the test there, really. Um, I should say as well that you should establish um, when the patient is walking, when they turn, how many steps that takes. Mm. So um, that's a really key sign in terms of sort of cerebellar-type pathologies. Um if it takes more than sort of three to four steps, which is a normal sort of turning point for somebody who has an intact um, neurological system, um, then then you'd start to question as to whether there, there was an issue there, really. So make sure you're um, assessing them as they're turning around to come back to you as well. Um, so we've done normal walking, turning, heel-to-toe walking, um, and lastly, we need to assess um, Romberg's. Now, Romberg's, incorrectly often is um, uh, is said to be a cerebellar test when it's absolutely not. Um, so it's testing somebody's vestibular system, but also proprioception. They have an awareness of where they are and how they're standing. Um, so at this point, you'd get the patient to step away from a chair or a bed. And they're going to have to put their full faith in you as the healthcare professional that's looking after them and not going to allow them to fall. So you have to give them lots of reassurance that you're not going to let them fall. Um, and ask them to put their feet together and stand up nice and tall um, with their head facing towards a wall. Um, that you are either side of the patient to prevent them from falling that you will catch them if they start to stagger um, and ask them to close their eyes um, it's, you might have a slight sway to start with but otherwise patients are able to hold themselves upright um, in a true Romberg's positive the patient will just fall backwards they just won't be able to do this test at all um, sometimes and incorrectly what you will see is patients um, or um, clinicians saying that they had a positive Romberg's because they were wobbling from side to side that actually isn't a positive Romberg's it's a um, it's a sign that there could be a cerebellar cause to them feeling off balance um, and it's actually Rombo's negative. And what you'd want to then go to assess is to whether they have any truncal ataxia as a cause of their, um, their imbalance rather than it being true proprioception or vestibular in nature. Um, so that's our function complete. And that concludes Brilliant. our neurological examination. Brilliant. Um, so uh, in terms of our really important findings that we need to pull out each of those stages so each of the in the philippines um i guess it's just maybe helpful just to go over um which ones are going to be potentially pointed towards an upper or lower motor neuron yeah um, um issue 
So in terms of our inspection, when we covered this, what we spoke about, um, the upper motor neurone doesn't tend to have signs of fasciculation or any particular significant wasting. Uh, but for lower motor neurone signs, you can get really quite pronounced wasting, and that may just be one myotome um, that's affected. And you'll notice fasciculations within the same area. Um, with regards to tone, um, we spoke about increased spasticity or rigidity um, in upper motor neurone signs. What you may also find as part of your tone assessment when assessing for clonus, so uh, rotating the ankle and bringing it up very sharply, um, that you would have some myoclonic type movement um, and that you'd get the um, approximately four, four to five beats normally, but above that would be an abnormal finding. And that may be a sign of an upper motor neuro sign. Whereas in lower motor neuro signs of tone, it would hypertonia that you would typically um, note. In terms of power, um, with upper motor neurone, you'll notice that the extensors um, are weaker than the flexors uh, in the arms, but vice versa in the legs. So, for instance, your extensors will be stronger in the legs and your uh, flexors will be slightly weaker. With uh, lower motor neurone, different patterns of weakness depending on what the cause is and where the particular lesion is. Um, but classically, uh, proximal weakness in, in muscular disease and distal weakness in peripheral neuropathies. Um, we spoke about reflexes and they could be exaggerated or brisk um, in upper motor neurone signs. Um, as opposed to sort of hyperreflexia or even areflexia in lower motor neurone disorders such as MS, ALS. Um, and in terms of our um, reflexes, so upward going, um, Babinski positive sign in an upper motor neurone um, pathology um, as opposed to normal in lower motor neurone pathologies. Um, yeah. So I think that probably brings today's session to a conclusion. Sounds like a good point. And um, I'll put a link up to the um, Geeky Medics video as well on the blog entry. Lovely. And uh, yeah, nicely done. Thank you very much, Lucy. See you soon. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.